Hello. Uh, today's scripture will be coming from Matthew uh, chapter uh, 21, verses 33 through 45. Uh, for some context, this is uh, just as Jesus had entered the temple and the chief priests asked him, by what authority dost thou give these things? And who gave thee this authority? And this is one of his parables. It reads, Hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent out other servants, more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said amongst themselves, This is the heir, come, let us kill him, and let us seize upon his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto these husbandmen? These Pharisees said unto him, He will miserably destroy these wicked, uh, wicked men, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits of their seasons. Jesus said unto them, Did you never read of the, in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And, whoever, and whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard this, his parable, they perceived that he spoke of them. Thank you, Joseph. Yeah, there's one good thing about the COVID. We get to have Joseph with us. <laughs> yeah. And I love that song this morning. The church has one foundation. is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Isn't that a good song? Yeah. Well, with the return of the rainy weather has also come the return of rainbows to our regions. Has everybody noticed that? Yeah, I saw a beautiful one on Thursday. I was down on Brownfield Road. Um, when you see a rainbow, what comes to your mind? I think of promises. I do. I think of promises. The very first rainbow was a token given by God that he keeps his promises. So that's where I'd like us uh, to go this morning. That's what I want us to think about for a few moments together. Does God keep his promises? And if so, how does he do it? Now, there's a specific reason that I'd like us to think about this. It has to do with some fascinating conversations I've had with several friends of mine uh, whose point of view I value. Conversations regarding a significant current event. How many of you are aware that just a couple of weeks ago, peace deals were signed between the United, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Israel. How many of you heard that? Yeah, okay, good. In the 72 years of its national existence, the state of Israel has only had two peace treaties normalizing relationships 
with its neighbors, with Egypt in 1979 and with Jordan in 1994. That's just amazing, I think, that for 72 years, the nation of Israel, one of the most prosperous states in the Middle East and a beacon of democracy in that territory, has existed in the midst of its neighbors who won't even recognize its right to exist, much less engage it on friendly terms. But now, 26 years later, just this month, there's been this surprising breakthrough with the UAE and with Bahrain and also with Kosovo. Uh, plus, Kosovo decided that it will locate its new embassy in Jerusalem. And not only that, but it is reported that there may be other Arab nations in the region that will be normalizing relationships with, with uh, Israel in the months to come. Now, even though this may not seem like a big deal. I mean, they're small countries, right? Uh, and most of the news stories, most of them are not treating it as if it were a big deal. It is a breakthrough for what it has accomplished. And it's very good for the hope of peace to come in that part of the world. I mean, nobody ever believes that there will be peace in that part of the world, do they? Nobody ever believes that. But then all of a sudden, a seed of hope springs up. And that's good, isn't it? I mean, whenever, wherever peace breaks out nowadays, we should rejoice. Wherever peace gets a little toehold someplace, it's evidence that God's spirit is at work because that's what God wants for the people of the world, isn't it? Isn't it peace in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, and in the nations of the world, especially the troubled spots? But here's why these peace treaties are relevant for what we're going to think about today. Many, many genuine followers of God, especially here in the United States, they see these events, these treaties with Israel, as direct fulfillments of end-time prophecies that God has kept and is keeping his promise to the people Israel, his eternal promise to give them that territory known today as Palestine, that he promised to give them almost 4,000 years ago. And, of course, these people expect Israel, as we know it today, to figure prominently as we get closer to the return of Jesus. And so people are very interested in this. They're watching Israel. If you talk with your friends and neighbors who go to other churches, they'll tell you this. This is what they're talking about. You know this. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to think in terms of the big picture, all right, to answer two questions. What promises are we talking about? And how does God fulfill them? When Benjamin Netanyahu and Abdullah al-Nayan inked that deal at the White House a week ago Tuesday, was prophecy being fulfilled? Now, we're only going to have time to skim the surface material today because this, this is a huge topic. But we will look at a number of texts, and we'll probably go pretty quickly through them. If you want to jot them down, that's fine. Um, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time toward the end in the passage that Joseph just read to us, the story of the, the vineyard and the wicked tenants. And then at the end, I'm going to tell you a story that will maybe help you to understand why this is important at all. Why does this even matter? I mean, so what? 
And that's, where, that's what we're going to do. For those of you who want to go deeper, get a copy of this book, The Israel of God in Prophecy by Hans Lorendel. This little volume is almost worth its weight in gold if you want to really understand the principles, the principles of biblical interpretation, how Bible writers themselves uh, understood the Old Testament prophecies that God made to his people and how he fulfilled them. It's just very good. It's very well reasoned. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on eBay, but you cannot get it electronically. So you can't put it on your phone and read it in bed. You'll have to be resort to reading an actual book. How old school is that? If you don't want to buy the book, I've got a seven-page summary by the author. I will email it to you for free. You just got to call me or text me or send me an email or something. Let me know if you want that, okay? So, we're going to begin in very broad strokes. The story of the Bible is an epic tale of a God who loves the people he has made and yearns to be with them. And it's also the story of a few people who love God in return. That's the whole story in a single sentence. That's how it all started in a, way back in time in a place called Eden where everything was very, very good. And as long as the man and the woman God created chose to stick with him, it remained very good. But when they chose to go their own way, what happened? Well, the perfection of God's good creation was wrecked. Life became difficult. People found themselves separated from God. Death became a universal reality. And fallenness was passed down through the generations to the whole human family. Now, if you and I had been God at that point, we'd have probably just wiped it all out and started over. But God didn't do that because he loved his people very, very much, even though they had turned away from him. And so, rather than turning his back, he put into effect the contingency plan that had been held in reserve. The plan to win back the hearts of anyone who would respond, to clean up the contamination of sin, and to restore the creation back to its original perfection. It was a rescue mission. And that's the story of the whole Bible in a single paragraph. But from the get-go, this plan was not only risky, it was also a long shot because from the very beginning, most of the people whose hearts God set out to win would not be won. Most of them, not everyone, but the great majority of them didn't want much to do with God. They wanted to go their own way, run their own lives. Of course, there were always a few faithful people who trusted God down through the generations who did choose his way. Abel, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Enoch, Methuselah. But by the 10th generation, by the time of Noah, how many faithful people who loved God were there? Anybody remember? Eight. Things had gotten so bad that there were just eight people left on the earth who loved God and would respond to him. 
And the Bible uses a very special word to describe that minority of human beings from every generation that love God and choose to follow him. The minority of people. Does anybody know what that word is? It is the word remnant. That's right. What's a remnant? A remnant is just a small piece that's left from an original. It's a very important word, especially in the Old Testament. It's used over 70 times, and it's always used to identify the minority of people who truly love God. And it's always a minority. Why? Because, like Lindsey Buckingham and Fleetwood Mac used to sing, the majority of people choose to go their own way. Go their own way. That's why Jesus said, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Only a remnant. eh? This is a theme throughout the whole Bible. So then, by the time of Noah... The remnant had gotten so small, only eight people, God had to do something or pretty soon there wouldn't be anybody left. So he brought the wickedness of the world to an end through the flood, but he saved who? The remnant, Noah and his family, and he started again, take two. And even though wickedness sprouted up anew and the majority of human beings again chose to go their own way, God still loved his people and pursued them so that as many as would choose to love him in return would be saved. And this time, God looked out and he chose a particular man through whom he would work. The Bible says that God knew him that he would command his children after him and they would keep the way of the Lord. In other words, he chose this particular man because he was faithful. His name was Abram. Later, God changed it to Abraham. He was not a perfect man, but he was a faithful man. He would choose to follow God and to love God. And so God chose him for a very special purpose. And he gave Abram some very important promises. In Genesis uh, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, God comes to Abram, and here's what he says. He says, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. This is the call of Abram. God is calling him to leave his family and household behind. Why? Because they were all idol worshipers, right? They didn't care anything for the true God, so God pulled him out of that. He was a remnant Because he had a plan, not only for Abram, but for the whole world. And he says, I'm going to take you to a different land. You don't even know where it is yet, but I'll show it to you if you will follow me. And then God says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Notice what God says here. How many people does he intend to bless through Abram? All peoples on earth. That's why God chose Abram. Not because Abram was somebody special, but because God knew he could use him to bring blessing to other people. 
and that through him, through his descendants, how many people on earth are going to be blessed? Every single one of them. All people on earth, it says. Now, a question. Is the scope of that promise to bless all people on earth, is the scope of that promise local or is it universal? In other words, does it apply just to some people or does it apply to every person? It applies to all people, to everyone. So it's universal. Of course, it did have some local fulfillment. Abram was a blessing to the local people around him. He uh, rescued hostages that had been taken. He interceded for a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. But God is very clear that ultimately this promise is about bringing blessing to everyone on earth. So that's what God has in mind. That's one of the promises that he gave to Abraham. That's why he chose him, because of his mission, okay, to bring blessing. Now, all told, God made three promises to Abraham. This is the one that everybody seems to forget, and it tends to be the most important of the promises, I think, the one about the mission. We tend to forget, oh yeah, that's, that's, that was the promise. But there are two more that everybody seems to remember, right? They remember that God promised to make him into a great nation. In other words, he would have lots of descendants. In fact, later, God comes to Abram on a clear, moonless night, and he takes him outside his tent, and he says, look up and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you are going to have. In another place, he says, his descendants will be like the sand on the seashore. Now, another question. Is the scope of this promise, of lots of descendants, is it local or is it universal? What do you think? It's universal because it's limitless. It's limitless. This will not be fulfilled by just a few people. There will be so many descendants, they can't be counted. It's like trying to count grains of sand on the beach. Because what God has in mind here is way more than physical blood descendants. And here you have to remember what Paul writes. And watch now how the New Testament writer sees the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel in the Old Testament. This is a key text. Watch. Galatians 3, he writes, If you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Okay. Now, who is Paul writing to there in Galatians? Is he writing to Jews or is he writing to Gentiles? Hmm? He's writing to Gentiles, non-Jews, in other words, people who were not part of Israel. He's writing to the believers in Galatia who are Gentile converts to Christianity. He's writing to the church. Okay, But wait a minute, wait a minute. How can you be a descendant of somebody if you don't have a bloodline? Well, it's because bloodline isn't what matters here. What's required? belonging to Christ, accepting Jesus as the Messiah. He says, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's descendant. And so the promise made to Abraham, promises, promises of a mission to bless the world, promises to become a great nation with a great name, they become your promises when you choose Jesus. You need to remember that now. 
And if you are a follower of Jesus, by the way, if you have chosen Jesus, then you have the same calling, the same mission, the same responsibility that was given to Israel in the Old Testament. And that was to bless the world. Have you been doing that? And then there was one more promise that God made to Abram. I could ask Gerald. He, wouldn't, he knows what it is. It was land. And here we're going to get to the heart of it. All right, We're thinking about the land because of the peace treaties that Israel signed last week. God says, to your descendants, he's speaking to Abram, to your descendants I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Canaanites, Gergesites, and Jebusites. Notice how he carefully hems it in with borders, all right? All the tribal lands that fall between the two great rivers, the Nile and the Euphrates. Joseph's going to put that one up on the screen for you right there. There's a map of the Middle East, all right? God brought Abram out of Babylon, out of Ur of the Chaldees, and led him to the land he promised to give him as an inheritance, the promised land, the Bible calls it, right there where the red X is. The land of Canaan, we know it today as Palestine, and God demarcated it very specifically. There's the river in Egypt, that's the Nile down there in the south, all the way to the river Euphrates up in the northeast, and everything in between those rivers inhabited by those pagan nations, that was the land of promise. Eventually, Jerusalem would be right in the middle. Jerusalem wasn't there yet at the time that the promise was made. In another place, God says he'll give Abraham every place where he's walked, every place where your feet have trod. Of course, God never gave any of it to Abraham, did he? The only place Abram ever owned in this whole promised territory was the cave he brought from Ephraim the Hittite to bury his dead wife, Sarah. But eventually, Abraham's descendants got the land, at least some of it. When the Jews, who were the descendants of Abraham, after they had come out of Egypt, after they had been in the wilderness for 40 years, they crossed the Jordan and went into the land of promise, and God gave it to them. Of course, by that time, Moses had reduced the borders somewhat. Now, another question. Be careful how you answer this one, okay? Think. The promise of the land here, is the scope of this local or universal? Local or universal? How many of you think it was local? Okay. Let's see what the New Testament has to say. Paul is writing to the Gentile believers in the church of Rome. He's making the case that Abraham was not saved because he kept God's law. In fact, if you know anything at all about Abraham, you know he kind of fouled up quite a few times. But Paul says Abraham was saved because he believed in God. He followed after God. He trusted God. Now listen to what Paul says about the promise of land that, that God gave to Abraham. This is fascinating. Romans 4 and 13, Paul writes, It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. 
wait a minute. Genesis clearly says Abraham was supposed to get a certain tract of land between two rivers in the Middle East. But then Paul comes along and he interprets the promise and says God really intended to give him the whole world. So it's not a local promise at all. It is a universal promise. When God says, Abraham, I'll give you this land, what he really meant was, Abraham, I'm going to give your descendants the whole world. And we see hints of that in the prophet Isaiah where he speaks about the, the land made new and the, and the desert blossoming. We see the fullness of that coming in the book of Revelation where it talks about uh, the earth made new, the whole earth re reworked. And the writer of the Hebrews backs this up in chapter 11, that great hall of faith chapter where he says Abraham wasn't just expecting God to give him some dirt in the Middle East. It says, Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Do you see what the New Testament does here? The New Testament expands the promises. The New Testament interprets the original promises as if they were just prototypes and assumes that when they were given, they would have a much grander fulfillment than what you might originally have guessed. Abraham's descendants aren't just his bloodline kids. They are everyone who accepts Jesus as the Messiah, Paul says. The land isn't just tribal lands over there in the Middle East. It's the whole world. And by the way, this is exactly what John the Baptist taught. One day some Jews, Pharisees, and Sadducees came to him thinking they were pretty privileged people because they could trace their ancestry back to, back to Abraham. And John says, don't think to yourselves, we got Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of the stones, God can raise up children to Abraham. Bloodline is not required. In other words, you know, bloodline means nothing. What counts? What counts? repentance and trusting Jesus as the Messiah, the Lamb of God. John had pointed him out. There he is, the one that's going to take away the sin of the world. This is also exactly what Jesus taught. Watch this now. In his very first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins with the Beatitudes. In one of them, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit what? The earth, the whole earth. Well, there it is again. Now, Jesus is quoting from Psalm 3711, and here's what David writes. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. In David's mind, he's thinking about Pal Palestine, the land that was promised to the Jews. But Jesus takes that promise, and he expands it to mean the whole earth, and he applies it to anyone who, who will put their trust in him. See? So, I want you to notice what we've just seen. If we want to understand how God is going to fulfill the promises he has made to his people in the Old Testament, it is imperative that we understand how Jesus understood those promises to be fulfilled, and we've got to find out how the writers of the New Testament understood them as well. This is a normative thing, okay? This is a basic principle of understanding the Bible. The Bible provides its own key to understanding itself. If we force on it some arbitrary or literalistic lens, we're going to get the wrong idea. The Bible itself provides the key to understanding how the promises are fulfilled. These are not isolated scriptures, by the way. The New Testament is full of this. For example, 
Just think about the call to worship that David read to us a few moments ago. Peter writes, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Who's he writing to? He's writing to the church. Everything Old Testament Israel stood for, Peter now applies to the church. The chosen people, royal priesthood, God's special possession. This is straight out of Exodus chapter 19. This is Peter's inspired interpretation of the fulfillment of God's covenant with Israel. It comes right out of Exodus. But he's not finished. He goes on. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, here he takes very specific promises God made to Israel in the book of Hosea. Very specific promises to Israel of old that had to do with God gathering his scattered people back to their land. And he says, they've been fulfilled to you, church, to you. God has been faithful. He kept his promise. Over and over again. This is how the New Testament writers understand the fulfillment of the promises. Now, there's another principle that's critical for understanding how God comes through on his promises. It is the principle of conditionality. Although his promises are irrevocable, in other words, they cannot be retracted, they are certainly not unconditional. Listen to what Moses says now. The children of Israel are standing on the borders of the promised land. It's been 400 years since God gave the promise to Abraham that the land would become theirs. Um, he is finally ready to give it to them. But first, before they go in, Moses gives them a warning. This is Leviticus chapter 18. Uh, this is God speaking to Israel. He talks about all the ways the pagan tribes who have been living in that land have been acting wickedly and perverted goodness and defiled themselves. And then he says this. This is how the nations I am going to drive out before you became defiled. And he lists the, the whole first part of the chapter is just sin after sin after sin. It's despicable. It even includes child sacrifice. It says, even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and laws, and if you defile the land, it will what? It will vomit you out too, right? Just as it vomited out the nations that were before you. And that's quite a word picture. If you think about that. How many of you enjoy watching somebody vomit? Hmm. What's Moses saying here? Well, it's pretty clear cut. If his people want to keep the land, they have to keep faith with God. That's just very simple, isn't it? This is a critical principle. God's covenant promises to Israel are always given in the context of a faithful response on the part of the people to follow God and to love him, to be his people, in other words. And that was the essence of the covenant, was it not? I will be your God, you will be my people. That's it. It's two-way street. Promises are never fulfilled, divorced from the faithfulness of the people. 
There's only one promise I know of that God made in Scripture that, that was fulfilled irrespective of the faithfulness of people. And that was, I won't destroy the world again by a flood. And I give you the rainbow as a sign of that. See? For example... Let me give you an example now. In his farewell address, Moses reminds the people, he says, if you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, in other words, if you choose to stand by God and follow him faithfully, then what will happen? Then the Lord will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your forefathers. So it's conditional on keeping faith in God. The promise of, his, of, of blessing, the promise of territory, they are never blank checks. Their fulfillment always depends on the faithful response of the recipients. You can look through, look through the Bible, you find it over and over and over again. So, I need to ask a question now. Did Israel do this? Were they faithful to God? Yes or no? No. The tragic answer is they were not. For nearly 800 years... They lived on that land that God had given them as God's people, choosing to go farther and farther away from God, despite warning after warning from prophet after prophet, until finally you know what happened. The ten northern tribes were carried off into captivity by Assyria in 722 B.C., never to return. The two remaining tribes, Judah and Benjamin in the south, were carried off to Babylon. Why were they carried off? Because most of the people and most of the leaders chose to go their own way. They had chosen to turn their backs on God. Most of the people, but not all. Not all. In spite of the rampant wickedness and rebellion, there were still some people who loved God and chose to honor him. And you know what the Bible term is now that describes that little group of people, don't you? It's the remnant. And so the prophets spoke not only warnings of coming judgment to the people, they spoke promises of restoration to the remnant. And there are literally dozens of them in the Old Testament. One of the most remarkable promises to the remnant was given by Jeremiah as the people were being exiled to Babylon. And we looked at this a few weeks back, if you remember. He said the punishment would not be permanent, but it would last how long? Seventy years. He says, when the seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you. And I will fulfill my gracious promise to you and bring you back to this place. Now watch. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear, me. I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. Now do you see that promise? The promise to bring them back into their land it's not for everybody. It's for the remnant, the ones who seek God with all their hearts. And that is exactly what happened. God brought his people back and he gave them another chance. Take three. In fact, he gave them 490 more years. And we looked at that too, the 70 weeks, to be his people. Did they succeed? At first, things started out pretty good under Zerubbabel, the priest, coming back. The people were no longer, you know, under a king. They, they rallied around the temple. They were God's people. But 
Not for long. Not for long. And one, Bible, one, one writer, not a Bible writer, uh, puts it like this. He says, the history of Israel as recorded by Moses and the prophets has been called a history of failure. And so, because God's purpose in bringing blessing to the whole world cannot be thwarted, because God has promised that his purpose will stand and that, and that he will do all he has promised to do, he had to institute phase four, take four. Okay? When Israel as a nation failed, God himself provided at last one true Israelite, one perfect Israelite who would succeed where all other Israelites had failed and all the hopes and promises made to Israel as a nation would coalesce on him. He was a descendant of Abraham. Matthew tells us that, fulfilling the promise that God had made centuries before to bless all the peoples on the, on the earth through Abraham. His name was Jesus, the Messiah. Take four. He came to his own, John writes, but his own received him not. Why not? Why not? Because the leaders of the nation didn't want to take him on his terms. They were looking for a redeemer of, of the nation. They were looking for a political savior, someone who would get them out from under the rule of the Romans. They were looking for an ethnic savior, someone who would restore national greatness. But Jesus didn't come to fulfill the promise of national greatness. He came to save his people from their sins. And so, they wouldn't have him. So near the, near the end of his ministry, after he had been opposed and persecuted and challenged by the leaders of the nation for nearly three and a half years, he told them a story about a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Jesus was drawing on the prophet Isaiah, where Isaiah says in chapter 5, I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stone and planted it with the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut a wine press as well. Then he looked for a good crop of grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. What's Isaiah even talking about here? He's talking about the nation of Israel. In verse 7 he says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. But when Jesus tells this story now that they're all familiar with, he twists it a little bit. Instead of looking for good grapes and finding bad ones, he says, The man rented it out to farmers and went away on a journey. Notice he rented it. Didn't say he gave it to them unconditionally. He rented it. And when the crop came in, the owner sent some servants to get the fruit, but the renters beat them and killed them until finally he sent his son, and they killed the son too. So when the owner of the vineyard finally comes, Jesus asked his listeners, what do you think he'll do? <laughs> he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And... He'll rent the vineyard to other farmers who will share the fruit. 
And with that, Jesus pronounces the verdict. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Wait a minute. Is Jesus saying that those irrevocable promises given to the patriarchs, those promises made to the nation of Israel, are being taken away and given to some other people? That is exactly what he is saying here. Well, who then? Who, who will get the promises? Well, what did Jesus say to his followers, the ones who believed that he was God's Messiah, those 12 guys that he had called and commissioned, just like God had called and commissioned the 12 tribes of Israel long ago? He said, don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And that's incredible because in the Old Testament, God's people of Israel was known as his flock and God himself was, was known as the shepherd. Here, Jesus clearly identifies himself as the founder of new Israel. He's the good shepherd, right? And so the promises and the responsibilities of Israel are transferred to the church. That's why Paul could write, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. They're not just yes, blank check. They're yes in Christ. They all coalesced on him as the one true Israelite, and they are all dispensed to the people who believe him to be God's Messiah and follow him, and that is called the church. And that's why Paul also wrote, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Over and over again, the New Testament writers clearly identify the church as God's Israel, that faithful remnant made up not only of faithful believing Jews, but faithful believing Gentiles as well. And the promises come to the church through Christ. Now, does this, does this make sense? That makes sense to you? So then, the almost final question of the morning. What becomes of ethnic Israel then, of Israel as a nation? Well, what does Jesus say? He says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom, now who are the subjects of the kingdom? They're the Israelite nationals, right? They were the, the lovely vineyard. They were God's, God's special flock. They were his chosen people that, that chose not to follow him, the subjects of the kingdom. They will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Because they rejected the Messiah, Jesus. And then finally, there is his most famous answer. Given as he was leaving the temple for the last time, he begins to weep for his people who have turned their backs on him as a nation. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were unwilling. Look. Your house is left to you desolate. What does desolate mean? It means it's over for good. 
Up to this point, Jesus has always referred to the temple as my father's house, but no more. He says it's your house because Israel's final chance as a nation has been squandered. There will be no more chances like there was after the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. This time, the pronouncement is permanent. There will be no more takes. Okay? The faithful remnant has now become the church. Now then, the final question. According to what Scripture says, according to what the New Testament writers, how they view the promises, what is the prophetic significance of national Israel in the Middle East today? Nothing. Nothing. And I say that with kindness to many people, many honest-hearted Christians who believe there is some sort of prophetic significance connected with present-day Israel, but there is absolutely none. Absolutely none. So now I'm going to finish with the story that I promised you, and the point of the story will be to help us understand why this even matters. What difference does it make? During World War II, in the terrible winter of 1943, the Allied forces were desperate to open a second front against the Nazis. The only question was where? A cross-channel invasion into France was still impossible at that point. We were not prepared for that. So the decision was made to open a second front somewhere along the Mediterranean coast. But where? Well, once the decision was made, British intelligence agents, one of whom was Ian Fleming, by the way, a guy who would later write a series of novels about James Bond, the secret agent, these agents embarked upon one of the most audacious plans of the war to fool the Germans into believing where the landings would take place. From the local morgue in London, they procured the dead and unclaimed body of a jobless, homeless man. After three months on ice in a local mortuary, his body was shipped off to the coast of Spain for an elaborate plot to fool the Nazis. Intelligence officers had spent months transforming the corpse into a soldier with a very detailed backstory, down to the tiniest details. In his pockets went an identity card, ticket stubs, mementos from a fiance, rent receipts. Chained to his wrist was a briefcase containing a letter marked personal and confidential, implying, uh, identifying Greece as the invasion target of the Allied forces. It was done so well and so completely and so convincingly that uh, it, it, it was believed. The corpse was left floating uh, in a raft near the coast of Spain. They chose Spain because uh, it was known to have many German spies. Sure enough, when the, when, the, when the man was discovered, he was assumed to be a British military courier who had perished in a plane crash. And the Germans soon got their hands on the contents of the briefcase, ecstatic over their amazing intelligence windfall. Within a week, Photographs of the falsified documents made it all the way to Hitler's desk. He was fooled and moved an entire panzer division, over 90,000 soldiers with tanks and heavy guns, to Greece. 
because the Allies had broken the German codes, the British knew that the Germans had swallowed the bait, hook, line, and sinker. And so they launched the invasion against the real target, Anzio, in Italy. It fell with but a fraction of the casualties that they had expected because it had been left unprotected by the Germans. And the tide of the war was turned, thanks in part to a dead tramp set adrift in the Atlantic. It was called Operation Mincemeat. Its purpose was to distract the Germans from the truth. Like Operation Mincemeat, the teaching that modern Israel will be prophetically significant at the end of time, however well-intentioned that seems to be, is a distraction from genuine truth. The wonderful truth of God's glorious promises and how he fulfills them, it is a distraction from the unbelievably good news of the gospel, how God saves people, both Jews and Gentiles, on the basis of his marvelous grace, and it is a distraction from the magnificent work of Messiah, Jesus, the one upon whom the destiny of every human being falls. This is not a time for all eyes on Israel. It is a time for all eyes on Jesus, the one true Israelite who overcame and kept faith and so deserves the promises of God where every other human being has fallen short. The one who promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's stand together as we sing our final song, Standing on the Promises. <laughs>